ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and I am so thrilled about today's show. Uh, first of all, because this book was written for people just like me. And I know many of you who listen to our show are either entrepreneurs, solopreneurs, or want to be preneurs, right? Where you're you're stuck in a corporate job and you've got an idea and, and you want to go out, but the thing that we're going to be talking about today is what really scares most people into not starting their own company. The name of the book that we're going to be talking about is Nothing Ventured, Everything Gained, How Entrepreneurs Create, Control, and Retain Wealth Without Venture Capital. The author that we're talking to today is Dilip Rao. Dilip, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Chicky. Well, it is my pleasure. I will tell you uh, again, when I saw uh, your, your publicist that asked me to interview you, I thought, wow, this could not be better timed. My company, uh, I bootstrapped the company for uh, really the, its entire existence. The product concept was back uh, as far as 2007 and our early foray into you know trying to go into the market. And now here we are uh, quite a bit later and we are raising uh, a round of capital, but not from the VC community. So let's mm-hmm. just jump right in. Uh, before we get to the book though, could you give me a thumbnail of your background and what really got you to the place where you said, you know, I've got to put this down on paper. Okay. I know I can take about three hours talking about me, but <laughs> let me try and do it in a few seconds. I started out uh, while I was doing my PhD. I started out in a small venture capital firm and uh, with a summer job, ended up being 23 years. And uh, we built the, uh, the fund. And as, at that time, I thought, as many financiers do, that the sun rises and sets on money and finance. And after I retired, I started teaching and at the University of Minnesota here, and now I teach around the world. And I started listening, inviting and listening to billion-dollar entrepreneurs who were coming to my classes. And what I realized is that most of them had never used venture capital. And so that made me curious, so I started interviewing them. And that kind of led me to this. I wrote my last book called Bootstrap to Billions based on the profiles of these entrepreneurs. And Mm. what I realized is that there are two methods to grow. The one method that is publicized all the time is the one that is the venture capital method, which is focused on the opportunity. But what all of these entrepreneurs did is focus on their skills and strategies that grow while avoiding venture capital or delaying it because they wanted to stay in control. And that's what I realized. So what's brought me here is the fact that I wanted to share with entrepreneurs that, look, um, 99.9% of you will not get venture capital. 80% of you will fail with venture capital. And the remaining 0.02% can do better by delaying it. So here is how you can do it. 
Well, I I love uh, I'm going to have to get the bootstrap to billions because uh, I I am hoping that all of this painful time frame I said I would never bootstrap another company. This is my second venture. My first one, uh, I put a million of my own resources and raised seven million from a local uh, investor here in Tampa. And, uh, you know, it was a very painful experience for a whole lot of reasons, which are, are better discussed someplace else mm-hmm. other than on the radio. Uh, but, uh, you know, this time I did decide I was going to go a lot slower. And, and really, uh, I, I do hope we get to talk a little bit about pace because, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, when when you do get to this point, we've got a very mature product now because, again, the product is already on its third generation because I've been able mm-hmm. to get – I'm a bit of a uh, Pied Piper when it comes to getting people mm-hmm. to work with me and mm-hmm. and haven't, haven't paid a single dollar out in salaries yet. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're at a very, very interesting stage. So let's jump right into the book. And, and the book is broken into four parts. And the first part of the book – talks about the skills that you need to succeed without venture capital. So let's start there and, and, and let's talk about the whole thing about bootstrapping and, and all of the innovation around that. Uh, there are a lot of new ways uh, to make it without needing capital. So let's start there. Mm-hmm. Sure. The, the, basically, the uh, key that I heard what you were saying is that you need to worry about the stage of the business that you're in. Mm-hmm. And and there are three broad stages, and this book refers to the first stage, and that is how do you go from idea to something? I call it right. aha. Aha is when people can see something. And the first thing is you need to have the skills to develop the product, whatever it is. That is what entrepreneurs need. They need you know people talk about passion, but the trouble is they talk about passion in uh, that sometimes refers to days or months and not years. And so you need uh, the skills to start your business. The second is it's nice to have skills in emerging industries because that's where most of these people, uh, most of these billion-dollar entrepreneurs made their fortunes. They got into emerging industries uh, or emerging technologies, and then they dominated fragmented industries. The second thing after the skills, uh, and it's not skills that you learn in business school, uh, you, these are skills that you need for the industry itself. But the second is sales skills. Right. Uh, people need to be able to sell. And the trouble, if you don't know how to sell, is you rely on other people who then take over the business. So uh, that's why I always uh, refer people to the Big Bang Theory and point out that the guy who got the good-looking girl was uh, the guy who knew how to sell, not the uh, high <laughs> uh, Exactly. And, and the third is that I think is seldom taught uh, is you need what I call finance smart skills. You know, we have smart money and smart this and smart that, but you need skills where the average entrepreneur needs to know how to control their business by looking at the numbers and how right. to guide the business and how to find the right sources. So many people tell me, oh, I don't know about money. I'll let somebody else worry about it, my accountant. And my first reaction is that I'm not going to fund you. That's what <laughs> exactly. Because I want you to know your business and how you do it better. So if you have these three skills, uh, then you can get started. Then you need to have the right strategies to uh, take off. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, I, again, I have uh, experienced all of those things and understand the importance of selling. You know, founders of businesses uh, quite often will have skills in the technical area or in the product area. Um, it is really rare uh, to have a founder who is a really great salesperson as a part of their nature <laughs> right now. That's not to say that they can't sell because we are the best ones to sell our product because we're the most passionate about it. And that that's kind of the good and the bad is we are the most passionate about it. So maybe we never shut up, right? When we, when we mm -hmm. shouldn't stop and do the things that real salespeople do, which is listen. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, but, and close on the order, yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so you use a term in this first part of the book called missionary selling. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, missionary selling is the most difficult part about selling. And that is when no one knows who you are. Uh, and no <laughs> one really gives a damn. Uh, right. You know, you think the world is breathlessly waiting for you <laughs> to enter business and listen to your pitch. And then you're shattered when no one wa even wants to meet with you. And... Uh, this is one of the reasons why I tell people, if you don't have a thick skin, you're not going to uh, Absolutely. do well. Absolutely. And I'm and, only laughing because it is so very true, what you said. <laughs> yeah, and, and so, I mean, uh, one of the things that uh, Bill Gates did was do a lot of PR because he knew that that way people would know he is, who he is and be able to do it. Steve Jobs was a natural salesman. Uh, so you look at people like them, and you figure out that And Utah has uh, built a number of uh, new ventures, primarily because uh, you know many of their residents go out and sell religion. And uh, what better thing to sell? So they they have learned sales, they have learned rejection, and they have learned how to succeed. And I think every business school ought to focus on scale sales. Oh, I think so, so too. I think so too, because uh, I, you know, it, it's been the bane of my existence because it, while I can do it, I don't love doing it. And you tend to uh, always hone back on the thing that you love the most, right? And I love the product the most. And, and you're right. It wasn't 680,000. It, it was uh, 16,000. Or, oh, okay. or, yeah, but, but yeah. still, it was, a, it was a large number of hours that we haven't had to pay for. So this operating frugally is uh, one of the things that, that I have learned how to do well because uh, it takes understanding that you can put together a lot of tools that make you look like you're much larger than you are, right? And those tools don't have to cost a lot of money. So over the course of the last 18 months in my venture, we have operated the company. If you, you know, take the whole amount we've spent and, and divide it out by the number of months, we've spent about $3,400 a month. And, and to get a business to the place where we are, I mean, it's just unheard of that you can operate that way. So you're absolutely right on that one. Operating fr frugally is important. So what tips do you give uh, entrepreneurs about how to, how to actually do that? Because it is the awareness of the spending, but there, there are ways to do this. Uh, I think the first thing I would point out to them is this is not uh, am I right-brained or left-brained. If you're going to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to be right-brained and left-brained. Yes. I think that's the first first point. And you may have partners, but if you're the lead, you better have a uh, foot in both uh, camps. Mm -hmm. uh, and the, and the, what that means.
means really is you need to know how to sell, which is what we talked about, and how to operate truly. And uh, the first thing I found is that you need skills in the industry you're going into. We ran five businesses. We our fund purchased businesses that were failing, and uh, we tried to turn them around. Right. And so I, I had to end up learning fast food because we were a franchisee of Arby's and learned how to run a meat company. So basically, you know, you get in and you go to conferences, you go to uh, hire experts, and you learn. Uh, right. The best thing is to actually go and work for some company in that industry for a while. But I didn't have that luxury. So there are skills that you get when you are in an industry. The second is controlling costs. And you need to know what those costs are and how to control them. And also raise productivity, which now goes to people. Uh, so you need to figure out what makes them tick, how to motivate the good ones, how to monitor the good ones. Again, goes back to information. And how to motivate employees without shortchanging the customer. You know, sometimes you motivate employees by trying to make things faster. But all that happens is you end up teeing off the customer. Uh, and I think the most important thing in this is benchmark, benchmark, benchmark. Learn how you're doing compared to the others, compared to your industry, and then uh, try to improve on them to add value. Right, right. So higher as, rights, obviously. Oh, yeah, that that is imperative. So the next section is all about innovation. And, and about getting more potential per dollar. So talk to me a little bit about uh, being focused on innovation, and you call it Innovation VC style. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Innovation VC style is, VCs have a very strong uh, method and agenda and goals. They raise money from uh, uh, funds, that demand a certain level of returns. Right. And so there are only certain kinds of industries that offer those kinds of returns. And these are usually uh, emerging industries. But VCs, most of the time, 97% of the VC money goes to uh, uh, ventures after they have proven their uh, potential. Yes. And so uh, the entrepreneur has to bring it from idea to potential. So the innovation burden is on the entrepreneur. So the question is, what can entrepreneurs do to build a big business without capital? That becomes a key question because most of us don't want to stay small if we can become big. Uh, And uh, most of us don't have access to capital because we don't have rich parents. Uh, And so how do we take care of that, uh, those things? That's uh, the key thing in this chapter. And I can go into that if you would like me to go into it. Well, I think I think where I would like for you to focus is you've got a couple of again uh, really practical ways that people can bang for their buck, such as uh, you. So one of your chapters in this section about innovation is called imitate and improve. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So talk to me about that. Every entrepreneur. Uh, and the reason why I suggest that is because uh, we have been brainwashed uh, by, I think, the academic community and uh, hangers-on to innovate, innovate, innovate. Everybody says people have to innovate. That's how we do it. You know, the trouble is, strictly from the perspective of the entrepreneur, if you look at most entrepreneurs, they imitated and improved. 
they did not sit in a dark room and said, give me a brilliant idea, oh Lord. <laughs> they basically said, what is the market doing and how can we do better? So if you look at Steve Jobs, he boasted about being an imitator and improver. That was right. the iPod, the iPad, and the iPhone. If you look at Bill Gates, he basically took the idea about the operating system from somebody else and built a company along those lines. Look at Mark Zuckerberg. Right. Uh, Facebook wasn't his idea. It was somebody else's. So we give too much importance to innovation. And the trouble with being an innovation and the corollary, uh, I write a blog for Forbes, and if people want to read more, they can go to these keywords. First mover, I think that's one of the most dangerous words in the English language <laughs> when it comes to entrepreneurs. Because right. what it means is that you are the pioneer out there. And uh, everybody could figure out what you're doing wrong and improve on it, which is what the successful entrepreneurs did. And I've had students ask me, uh, but if we don't innovate, who will? And my reaction is, if you're a nonprofit charity or a government, go ahead and do it. But if you're the <laughs> right. entrepreneur struggling to succeed, uh, imitate what somebody else is doing and improve it to the needs of the customer. And that is one of the crucial aspects of this. Uh, so that you can reduce the cost and the time. And the second aspect is how do you do it on an emerging trend? That is a second key aspect. And the reason why that is important is because there are only about two or three ways to grow. If you don't have much money, you can't do leverage buyouts and acquire. And that means that you can only grow by growing with an emerging market or industry or by taking market share. And market right. share is tough to do. I mean, everybody who's tried to take market share knows that if they're going against strong established companies, it's right. extremely difficult. That's why Elon right. Musk is such a genius. And uh, and that means that if you go into an emerging industry and you imitate and improve, now you need to learn the skills in that emerging industry. So those key suggestions by themselves can do a lot. And the book goes into other things that I think can help them. Uh, but these are the two broad ones. Well, I will tell you that uh, this particular section of your book is actually very encouraging to me because now I, I feel like we're on the right track because I've done most of these things right. <laughs> and and we, yeah, and uh, so it is, it's very encouraging. I've, I've spent my entire adult life in the travel industry, which uh, again, it's pretty tough to claim first mover advantage in anything when you've got companies like Expedia and Priceline that I call them the the Procter and Gamble of travel because every other brand that you know is owned by one of the two companies, mm -hmm. right? But boy, is it easy to be faster and better beating slow and perfect and well-funded, right? And and we have come out with something that, again, it we are improving backward from the unmet need, which is what, what your chapter here at the end of this section is, is about. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, everybody listening to us has, has traveled, right, at some point in time, and I'm sure that you have done a lot of travel. And most people don't even recognize how how underserved they are, right, by, by the current products and tools. So it's been really fun to innovate in a market that, you know, I've spent my whole adult life in. So um, you also talk in this section about improving frequently for happier customers, right? And that that mm -hmm. is part of innovation, maybe that people forget about, it, that at the end of the day, it really is about the customer who's going to use the product. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and uh, on, on the travel aspect, I uh, don't want to plug an airline, but I'm a, a diamond at, uh, on Delta, and uh, Delta does do very well by its diamond members. So, so they do take care of me very well. Right, right. Uh, but but uh, they improve frequently, I think, is a very important aspect. And the reason is that many people think, I've got to spend a whole bunch of money and do this massive new Model 3 0.0 and then a 4.0 and so forth. And what they forget is a 3.1 and 3.2 and 3.3 and so forth. Yes. Uh, and the big example there is uh, that I like to use is when Bill Gates and Steve Jobs were uh, fighting for control of the uh, PC market when Windows uh, and uh, the graphic user interface was first introduced, the Macintosh. Mm-hmm. And Steve Jobs introduced the Macintosh and did not improve it a whole bunch. And uh, Bill Gates copied him a year or two later. They both copied Xerox, incidentally. But uh, Bill Gates, uh, about a year later. But he kept improving uh, right. Windows. And uh, some people will still wonder whether it's really been improved, but I don't want to go there. <laughs> uh, and uh, But he kept improving it and ended up with a huge market share. So, so it's not a question of are you first mover. Actually, there was a study done by the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston, I think, by two people there, and uh, they found that 89% of first movers don't dominate. So I, I wish that business schools would stop using the word first mover, and so would uh, uh, journalists. But the point here is that never stop improving. Keep improving all the time. And horse to build Aveda told me the same thing. He said, I was continuously improving my skills and the people who worked for me so that we would always keep women happy. Uh, that was his goal, uh, keep women happy. And I said, why? He said, no, no. Uh, if my customers are happier, they uh, come back and they pay more and they tell their friends and that makes me happy. Uh, he was a poet too, in addition to <laughs> Well, and it sounds like he was a great strategist. And and part three of the book is about strategy for more edge per dollar. And mm-hmm. you you talk again, you show the correlation back with VCs and, and how they do their strategy. So I'd like you to talk a little bit about that. But I'm very interested in your next chapter, which is win with Goldilocks goals. What is that all about? Yeah. Uh. Actually, you know, even though the book is written in a sequential fashion, the reality I find is that many of these entrepreneurs go back and forth. Uh, so it's not as if I'm done with the product and now I need to go to the uh, strategy. If the strategy doesn't work, they go back to the product and they keep going back and forth. Because what they're looking at is how does the product best fit the market segment where I can dominate. But the Goldilocks goals is a very important one. And uh, and Dick Schultz, who built Best Buy, uh, kind of was pointing me in that direction. And he said, you know, initially I didn't have any goals of building the biggest uh, consumer electronics company in the world, though, in America. Uh, he said, I just wanted to earn a living, and then I wanted to reach a million, then I want to reach 10 million. So that's what I call Goldilocks goals. Uh, you ask entrepreneurs today, what do you want to be? And they'll say, the biggest business in the world and so forth. I said, what do you have now? And uh, uh, they don't even have the proverbial pot. And my reaction is, shouldn't you start small somewhere and, and then start to work your way up? Because right. just, uh, And I think part of the reason is, again, these myths that are created by VCs who say, 
well, if you don't have huge goals, don't come and talk to me. You may not be right for a VC at that stage. You may need to go to a VC at a later stage once you have proven your strategy. So initially, have Goldilocks goals, which is basically the uh, the warm goal, not the hot or the cold, and the next step, the next step, the next step, until pretty soon you're dominating the industry. And that should nice. be the ultimate goal. Because nice. that adds to credibility. You know, having, having goals and achieving them adds to credibility with everybody, your bankers, your suppliers, your right. customers, everyone. Exactly. And, you know, I've been sharing this with, with our sales team uh, because we, we need to prove that people in our own backyard will use our product. And uh, I've told them, even if we are not getting clients that are generating a lot of revenue, just having the distribution of our product, the, the presence, the points of presence in our backyard proves that, that we can actually do that. And then you can expand out from that once you have been successful you know, putting the tool in, in a hospital, then you can go to a hospital chain and then you can go to the conglomerate that owns the hospital. Right. Mm -hmm. And uh, so the, the other chapter here that intrigues me is you talk about differentiation, which is, you know, absolutely core to my, you know, really who I am. It's part of my DNA that that whole innovation and differentiation is important, but you call it an entry wedge. And I'm very visual and I am picturing that entry wedge. Tell me what's behind that. Well, the whole point about differentiation is uh, it should be in sync with the other aspects, which is how do you add value to your customers? Why would they keep coming to you? Uh, I was a chair of a chain of convenience stores, uh, gas convenience stores. And the toughest thing was to differentiate gas station A from gas station B. Right. And try to spend a lot of time and money trying to figure out how to do it. And because if you cannot differentiate, then A, how are you going to keep bringing them back? You might have to pay a, spend a fortune in advertising, in promotion. In, mm -hmm. uh, then you don't get to charge enough money. And now you're getting into the uh, lower price, lower margin uh, business. And right. it's very difficult for small, new, growing ventures to grow with low margins. Uh, my first rule when I used to finance was how high are your margins? And you don't get high margins unless you can differentiate. And it's always good to find that first thing that differentiates you with the right customers. So it's, this is really combining both the customers and the product that you're doing and what helps you uh, uh, differentiate with them. And uh, one of the guys I interviewed was a guy called Don Katula, who has built a great chain called uh, Northern Tool. And what he did was uh, realize that the people that he uh, was talking to and so forth were looking for, and from his days uh, working with his father, they were looking for a tool to uh, uh, cut timber. And so he built a kit, and, and then he was trying to differentiate how can we add value to them. So you have to find the right customers. So where were the right customers? They were the ones who read all the popular mechanics and other timber magazines and so forth. Right. And then how does he add value to them? There were many of them were do-it-yourself people. So he sold it as a kit, So it's uh, which also helped him uh, avoid the cost of uh, um, assembling it. Uh, so you start to look at these kinds of things and you, you're differentiating yourself in the mind of your customer, but it also means that you are forced to find the initial right customer.
Got it. Got it. Well, you have some great, again, the practical tips in this section about targeting the right group. Uh, you know, developing value, price for value, growth and cash flow. Uh, the one I'd like to hone in on before we move to the last section of the book is prove your strategy, fail small, win big. I love that one because you can't get to the end game without failing on, on some things. And I'm, I was trying to figure out how to tell this story as we are talking to investors in this first seed round that we are doing. And I, I think I'm going to use that that chapter title, uh, if you don't mind, because I'd like to oh, show our failures, right? Because, mm -hmm. because the failures are what's setting us up to win big. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and basically, uh, the whole point in this is we don't know what the right solution is. We don't know what the right strategy is until the market proves it which is why uh, I've made a lot of enemies in this business because I keep saying that things like pitch contests and shark tanks and business plan competitions are basically junk because uh, it, it relies on someone being able to read your plan and forecast what's going to happen. And the only two forecasters uh, that are uh, claimed to be correct and are basically uh, shameless are Indian astrologers and American economists. They're always <laughs> wrong, but they never admit to it. Uh, and the point about this is that as an entrepreneur, it's your money, it's your life. Test right. it, which means that you need to figure out, so what are the options I'm going to go after? What are the strategies? What are the segments? What are the, who are the competitors? What are the products? And then try a little with each one of them and see what works. And that's what many of them did because they knew that the instinct would be wrong. And so you, uh, you test it. And uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg was uh, really a, classic at this. One of the reasons he's so rich is because he came up with this system. And when we talk about add value and uh, differentiate yourself, his method was in initial product help bond traders, uh, bond brokers to uh, get an edge. And so he tested it with Merrill Lynch, who was his partner. Uh, and it went well. And the rest, as they say, is history. So when you test something, you can then put money after the test as opposed to saying when you have an idea, oh, I know this will work. How do you know it? Well, trust me. Uh, and the trouble when you are unproven is nobody's going to trust you. And even after you're proven, you can be wrong because you're trying to forecast the future. So right. in essence, what this is saying is test, uh, especially on the major things, on the key direction. Because if you can delay getting venture capital, if you can test small with small amounts of money and delay getting venture capital, what that will do to you is that it adds value to your business. It helps you understand uh, that this is the direction to go. And now you can prove to investors, if you need any VCs, that, hey, we are making money, at which point you get to keep more of the wealth that you create. And this is one of the most important statistics in the whole thing. I studied about $22 billion entrepreneurs on this because I couldn't get data for the others. And those who got venture capital early before they tested their strategy and their leadership skills kept only 7% of the money they created. Those wow. who got uh, VC late kept 16% of the wealth they created. And those who never got VC kept 52% of the wealth that they created. Wow. So if you look at it from the entrepreneur's perspective, it helps to test because you don't have much money to lose. 
And then once you've tested it and proven it, everybody wants to come and fund you. And then you get <laughs> to control them. Exactly. Well, and again, uh, we we talked just briefly before we started the interview. I when I saw the the promo material for your book, I actually shared it with my leadership team because you know it's frustrating if you've never been through raising money. Uh, it's frustrating to understand you know the timeframes involved, and and we're using a, a professional firm to help us raise money, but we're decidedly not going after VC or private equity yeah. at this juncture. And I, I've done a lot of work in my career, uh, actually working with private equity companies and and not so much the VC side, but on Mm -hmm. mergers and acquisitions in my industry. So I'm very, very aware of the dynamics of of what those kinds of investments produce. And in fact, I just wrote a book called uh, The Game Changer, which is actually an allegorical story about what happens to a leadership team who a VC, or I'm sorry, a private equity company comes in and then, of course, comes mm-hmm. in to do the turnaround and, and just all the dynamics between the people. And it was uh, it was a lot of fun to write it because mm-hmm. since it is a novel, I could take the literary license of writing about some of my own fears and aspirations, some mm-hmm. things that have happened in my career. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, it's just great fun. And, and then I had each one of the people who attended this turnaround uh, offsite uh, go home from that and listen to one of my real radio shows. So I can see a, a sequel to the book where where they're listening uh, to this interview even as we speak. So uh, let's move on to the, the last chapter or the last part of the book, which uh, I love how you have characterized this. The complete entrepreneur, right, is really what personal development uh, you need to grow more with. So this last section of the book is about the complete entrepreneur. And this focuses on personal development, which I suspect is really the thing that most entrepreneurs don't do because they're just isn't time, right? And, and you know, we're doing 80 hours worth of work because we're trying to get people uh, to work on our team, but they still have day jobs. And, and we really let ourselves get bone dry, right, on, on that front. So how do we change that? How do we become the complete entrepreneur? Well, the best way to do it, I think, is to first uh, understand what some of these really successful entrepreneurs did, what skills they had, and how they learned those skills. And uh, you know, in this one, I give the example of Glenn Taylor, who I think is one of the best entrepreneurs I've ever had the joy of meeting. And, uh, and he started as a uh, uh, son of a farmer and uh, went from there to becoming one of the richest men in the country. And, and it shows how he progressed and how he learned. And one of the key aspects that he learned is, uh, you know, he uh, when he joined college, he didn't have the money to get into college. So he, his teachers essentially got him a work-study program, and he started working in a printing company. And then 10 years, 15, 12 years later, he ended up owning the printing company and building it from about 100,000 plus to about 10 million. And, and this is the part of the story that I really uh, resonated with me because I'm a firm believer in education because you learn from other people's mistakes and screw mm-hmm. And what he did was, uh, this is when he was a multimillionaire. And
and he said, I need to go back to school to learn how to grow. And I said, Glenn, you've already built a great company. <laughs> uh, and uh, he said, yes, but I want to know how other people grew, what mistakes they made, and how to avoid them so I can uh, continue succeeding and keep on becoming huge. Uh, and that fundamental uh, aspect of humility that, mm. look, even, even though I'm so successful, I still need to learn is what I found very common among some of these very successful people and very successful entrepreneurs. Now, I know we all see uh, exceptions to that among some people, but, uh, but I find most people are continuous students. They, are, they never stop learning. Right. And you adjust yourself to new situations because the world is changing all the time, which means you've got to change all the time. And you've got to know what, what you need to know to reach the next step. And this is why I basically break it down into the nine or the seven steps of growth. And that is, right. how do you find the right opportunity? And this is also corporations. Corporations screw up when they don't have a continuous learning cycle. Right. You know, how do you find the right opportunity? How do you find the right strategy? How do you finance it right? How do you take off? How do you control a business? How do you organize the people? And then how do you become a great leader? And you keep going back and forth on those in order to look at where you are and how you go to the next step. So that's why I put that in, because I was truly impressed and humbled by his example. Oh, that is a great story. And, you know, it's so funny because I started this radio show 10 years, and I call it a radio show. I guess if you're younger, you call it a podcast. But I started it 10 years ago. And right after the failure of my my first entrepreneurial venture and, you know, after losing, you know, $7 million, uh, you know, a million of it, which was my own, right? And and $6 million, uh, which was my, my investor here uh, you know, from the Tampa area, um, I, I actually was fed up with the travel industry because it was a it was a product that was just absolutely game changing. Met the need of eighty nine percent of the travelers in this country who drive instead of fly, right? And mm -hmm. it, I mean, it was it was just brilliant, and the product was good, and the reasons for failure were like every other reason why a business can go under. Uh, just all of those things happened to us, and then it failed, that business failed at the time of the economic crisis, right? So here I find mm -hmm. myself, and I had been a consultant before that. And so my husband said, well, just go back out and consult. And it's like, well, great idea, but like nobody mm -hmm. has money right now and, and everybody's mm -hmm. cutting back. And and so I started the radio show and, you know, tried to figure out a way to monetize it. And then then later on, I, I got back into building out my current company and, and uh, did a little bit of consulting just to make ends meet. But, you know, my husband still asks me, Chickie, why do you still do this radio show? But it's actually this. It's part four of your book. Because this show, I mean, uh, obviously, I, I want to do it for the people who listen to it. But I tell him, I do this for me. This is my doctorate, <laughs> right? This is my doctorate in business. I have firsthand access to some of the best minds in, in the industry and in the world, right? And and I also have this amazing network that has come out of this that if I need something, I know they'll give me the time of day, right? And I'm not going to abuse that, right? Mm -hmm. So anyway, I just so thoroughly enjoyed this. We went a little bit longer than, uh, than we normally do, but I think it was really worth it. So we have been talking to the author of a book called Nothing Ventured, 
everything gained. How Entrepreneurs Create, Control, and Retain Wealth Without Venture Capital. Dalip, I, I would love it if you would tell folks how they can best reach you. Uh, the best way to reach me is on LinkedIn. And I don't have the, uh, I'm on all of them, but I'm, I'm at the age where I asked my children, what is an app? And they were trying to describe it. And then at the end of it, I said, that's a program. I used to write programs. And he said, yeah, but it's a program on a cell phone. I said, okay, that I understand. So it's, uh, yeah, I don't understand some of the new words. And I just joined Facebook. So I'm, uh, but LinkedIn is the best way to reach Well, me. no worries. And, and you actually do have uh, quite a common name. So I will tell folks that the LinkedIn page link is uh, linkedin.com forward slash I-N slash Dileep, D-I-L-E-E-P dash R-A-O. And uh, you can see his title here is as clinical professor uh, at FIU. Um, are, are you living in the Miami area now? No, I live in Minnesota. I yeah, I, th- I thought that's uh, what you the, said. Yeah. But the other thing they can also do is go to my website, which is dileeprao.com. Perfect. It's just D-I-L-E-E-P-R-A-O dot com. And there's a place there where they can send it to me. Oh, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, Dalip, thank you so, so much. Uh, It has just been uh, an honor and a privilege uh, to interview you and to get your perspectives. And I I can't wait. I've, you know, kind of looked at the book on the surface and I can't wait to read it cover to cover. I am pretty sure I'm going to have a pen in hand to write my notes in the margin as I, I normally do. So thank you so much for your time. Vicky, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Terrific. Take care. Have a great day. You too. Bye. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration. Innovation. With Chickie Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald.